Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When people say they don't have time, what they mean is they just simply don't want to do it. You will do something if you want it bad enough, because I believe long-term everything is rational. If you hate your job enough, or if you want to do something else enough, or if you want that wealth enough, you're going to find ways to make time. And so don't come to me and say, I don't have time, but I still want this. Because the reality is you don't want this. You don't want it because otherwise you would make time. For me, I wanted to get out of finance. After 11 years, I was like, this, this is not fun. Uh, you know, the recession, financial crisis, not making as much money, the correlation with effort and reward is off. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to start Financial Samurai finally in 2009, July, bottom of the market, because I was scared. I was scared that I was going to lose my job. And I wanted to do something new. And I needed a backup plan because I already graduated from business school. And therefore, I woke up a little bit earlier, you know, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., worked on it for an hour, two hours. And then after I ate at around 9 p.m., I worked on it some more. You will make time if something that you care about is, you know, is great enough. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Sam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Uh, you and I go way back way to back. probably 2009. I think we both started you know, blogs roughly around the same time. Um, I think we've met in person like once, from what I remember, somewhere I in so. San Francisco at uh, like a diner or coffee shop. Um, you have a new book out called Buy This, Not That, all of which we will get into. But as you know from having heard the show... Uh, I want to start with a question that has absolutely nothing to do with the book and kind of something to do with the book. Uh, okay. What was the very first job you ever had? And how did that influence the way that you think about careers, life and money? Uh, my first real job was flipping burgers at McDonald's for $4 an hour in high school. I was a sophomore. I needed some money to try to take a girl out on a date and I had none. Well, I had $10 a week in allowance. So that was one of the worst jobs I ever experienced because we had a power tripping manager who yelled at us for speaking Spanish because he thought we were talking bad about him or the customers. And it was also a really humbling job because I had to work the cash register on the weekends uh, and I would sometimes see my friends and I felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed with the purple you know, collared shirt and the black pants and then the visor. And so I hid away to make some apple pies. But that experience really kind of, you know, set me up for a desire not to work at McDonald's uh, after college and also to appreciate um, service jobs, minimum wage jobs, so I could never take anything I had for granted. Mm, yeah. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, my very first job was working at McDonald's for a power tripping manager as well, <laughs> an angry Jamaican lady who yelled at me constantly. And I think that one of the things that I recognized only in retrospect was, you know, I was a senior in high school. I was applying to college and I, I distinctly remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wait a minute, this is just a stepping stone for me. For most of these people, this is everyday life. Yeah. 
And it just makes you aware of sort of, you know, what a privileged circumstance you're in, even if you're, you know, not as poor as the people that were working at McDonald's. Um, So one of the things that you you actually talk about in the book is your parents and the fact that you you guys grew up without a lot of money. I mean, what did that do for your, your personal narrative around money? Like, how did that shape the way that you think about all of this and career choices? Well, my parents were firmly middle class. Uh, they worked for the U.S. government and they were foreign service officers. And it's just my parents were just super frugal. When I was in Malaysia for middle school, you know, we had government housing, which is a nice house, but he wasn't willing to buy a new car. He bought a 1976 Datsun, which was before Nissan, and it didn't have any paint and it only had one hubcap. And so I was, again, really, really embarrassed uh, getting chauffeured around, you know, anywhere with my parents. But it showed me uh, humility. It showed me frugalness. When we would go out for food, he wouldn't uh, allow me to order anything but water and a slice of lemon. And so it was this constant frugality and this uh, purposefulness of using money uh, that I think has really made me uh, the way I am today in terms of spending money and saving money and investing for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the things that really struck me uh, in the book was when you said we lived in a modest townhouse in a grungier part of town. I never had a Nintendo growing up. And all I knew of Air Jordans was a pair of hand-me-downs from a friend that was two sizes too large. Yeah. We were by no means poor. We just never had more than we truly needed. And it's funny because to listen to your story, I feel like we have led such parallel lives in some ways and, you know, such divergent ones in others, uh, because this was literally my experience growing up, you know, same thing. No ordering drinks, the Air Jordan thing. Trust me, the first thing I did when I had a job at Intuit, even though I don't play basketball at all, was I went and bought a pair of Air Jordans just to like, you know, heal that sort of childhood wound, uh, you know, from that experience. But given all of that, what was the the sort of narrative about making career choices and and making your way in the world? Well, so. My father sat me down at the breakfast table to show me stock tickers behind the newspaper one day. And he just explained to me what stocks are and investing. And so I said, hey, you know, if you can invest in something and not have to work and it might make you money, that sounded great. So I decided to study economics and Chinese in college. And then I decided, hey, why not work in the investment field? I mean, obviously, it's hard to get a job there, but I got lucky. I was able to get my first job at Goldman Sachs in New York City from the College of William and Mary, which is a state school and not a target school. Uh-huh. And I decided, why not make a career out of trying to invest and make money? Because actually, that's what I wanted because I didn't have any. Uh-huh. But I soon found out um, the first day on the job when they required us to get in at 530 in the morning and leave after 7 p.m. that there was no way I could last for decades like my parents did in the government. So very quickly, I had to figure out a way to save and invest so that I could one day be free. Mm. I want to come back to that. Uh, but I want to talk about your sort of pre-college and you know high school periods, because I know one of the things that you talked about uh, was playing tennis and how much that shaped your life. I'm always curious with athletes, as somebody who was a terrible fucking athlete for pretty much my entire, you know, uh, junior high and high school careers. when I realized I was meant to be a musician, not an athlete. Um, what are the things that you got from playing tennis uh, about, you know, discipline and habit that, that have informed and shaped the you know, work that you do today? So athletics has always been a part of my life. Um, I believe it's important to have a mental and physical balance. And, you know, pity the person who's seven feet tall who doesn't play basketball. <laughs> what a <laughs> waste, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of sad. For me, I'm only 5'10". Uh, you know, I have nothing special about me. I'm quite average. But tennis really instilled in me uh, work ethic and facing the fear of an uh, intimidating opponent and then just soaking in that anxiety and that need to prepare and to prepare yourself mentally for battle. And you know, I lost many, many times before, but it taught me really that the worst that can happen is that you lose and you learn from your mistakes and you try to get better. And so till this day, I still play competitive tennis, USTA league tennis. And it's just so thrilling uh, because of that battle, that need for preparation, that need for figuring out your strategy, adapting, you know, not failing because of a lack of effort. Because if you lose a match because you didn't try your best, you're always going to regret it you're always going to regret it. So this has totally instilled a lot of uh, my work ethic in every other part of my life. Yeah. 
let's talk about the the state college Goldman Sachs thing because you know having gone to Berkeley as an undergrad I know exactly what you're talking about you know Berkeley was one of a handful of target schools and even at a place like Berkeley they took one person every year yeah. and one of my friends was actually that one person oh, uh, nice. and his wife was the one person that got hired by McKinsey the year that she graduated wow. so you know, we always joke it's like these these two are like the ultimate power couple um but I think that what that shows me, at least, as somebody who made the transition from you know Berkeley to Pepperdine, where same thing that you experienced happened to me, but in graduate school, uh, is a level of resourcefulness that I often you know don't see in a lot of people who are like, oh, these doors aren't going to be open. And you and I both know. I mean, you said it yourself in the book. At the end of the day, like these luxury schools, these prestigious schools, they open doors that aren't always open to you. Otherwise, you manage to figure out how to kick the door down. Tell me about that. Like, what is like it that, that, you know, enables that? So I would have to say a lot of it has to do with luck and with showing up. I basically signed up for a career fair in Washington, D.C., two hours north of Williamsburg, Virginia, where the College of William and Mary resided. And I showed up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning on a bus and supposedly 20 other kids or more showed up, but uh, signed up, but nobody showed up. So after about an hour, the bus driver said, ah, screw those guys. Let's uh, change vehicles. So he drove me in the bus to s- some random shack. He parked the bus and he pulled out of this wooden garage barn, uh, a black uh, Lincoln town car. <laughs> and he drove me two hours, chauffeur limo, two hours to Washington, D.C. to the career fair. And so that was a great lesson of just showing up uh, because nobody else did. And I was there. I met with the recruiter. She was very, very hard on me. She just grilled me about the federal rate, uh, federal reserve and the various rate cuts, various stocks and everything. And then she invited me to Super Day. So she was my angel on my shoulder who saw something in me and said, you know what? Sam has some potential. Let's invite him to Super Day. But that's all she could do. She could invite, but she couldn't make them hire me. And then Mm -hmm. on Super Day, there were 12 interviews all day. It It was like eight, nine hours. And then after that, I said, oh, okay, I, I think I did well. I think I got the job. But I didn't get the job because apparently I didn't do well and I was kind of a, a misfit. You know, I came from a non-target school, public school. I didn't have, you know, connections or wealthy parents. And so they invited me for five more rounds of interviews in New York City. <laughs> and that was five more rounds and 55 total interviews uh, overall. And so after about like the 30th interview or 35th interview, I was like, this is ridiculous. But clearly I'm on the right path. They can't deny me now, can they? And so eventually, you know, they found a home for me, which was in the international equities desk because I had been bounced around from the U.S. trading desk to the derivatives desk. And so eventually it just worked out and I survived. Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about education, because I know that you actually later in the book go on to talk about education. But given the order of this conversation is going in, I think it's important that we actually address this. I mean, we're in a really kind of bizarre situation where higher education gets more and more expensive by the day. And it seems to be less and less of a guarantee that it's actually going to lead to anything. And I want to bring back a clip from an episode that we had with Scott Galloway that I actually also recently played another episode. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Despite the fact that the number of people going to college has increased dramatically, uh, the number of seats that have been offered by the top universities has stayed flat. So Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years, but the number of seats that they've increased has, has, they haven't increased their freshman class by anything substantial because we as academics, and I include myself in this, have become drunk with the notion of exclusivity. And that is we no longer see ourselves as public servants. We are see ourselves as luxury brands. And every fall, the head of admissions and the deans brag about how impossible it is to get into the college. And you can't be at a party without someone joking that they could never get into their alma mater today. But that's a bad thing because on a risk-adjusted basis, it's likely that your children will be somewhere in your weight class. Given that you've written a lot about this, what's your take on what he said? So I firmly believe that education is what will set us all free. But at the same time, education is free nowadays. You're listening to this great podcast. You can read a lot of financial literature. Anything you want, you can learn for free if you have internet access or access to the library. And so for the idea that tuition continues to rise at or quicker than the pace of inflation is ridiculous. And for the idea that uh, edu higher education says, you know, we want to educate the masses and, you know, education is for all, but then exclude the majority of people is also inconsistent with uh, thought and action. So my thought is this, uh, go to the best school you can get into and that you can afford. Uh, because over time, after you get your first job, nobody really cares about where you went. At the same time, it's that education that's going to provide you that first opportunity. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, I mean, the society is really bifurcated in this way. And I like to say the reason why William and Mary and UC Berkeley and other public schools are so great is because you can't buy yourself, buy your way in. You cannot buy your way in. You, you might a little bit, but not like the private schools who can decide who can get in and who can, who can't. 
And so I think there's actually a change uh, on the way. I think Forbes, they re-ranked their rankings and they put Berkeley at number one because it took into consideration what percentage of students uh, were getting Pell Grants. So uh, these grants for lower income kids to help educate um, smart, hardworking, talented, lower uh, income kids. And I thought that was a great variable to include in the rankings. So I think there's going to be a sea of change going forward where viewing that prestigious private school degree uh, is going to be bifurcated. There's always going to be people who want it, but there's going to be practical people and more and more people who realize it's really not necessary to get ahead and do what you want. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that you're a parent now and you weren't the last time we spoke, which was probably close to a decade ago. Right. Um, and I know your kids are young, but I wonder, how do you think about you know what the future is going to look like when it comes to education for your own children? Yeah. So one of the reasons why I'm a stay-at-home father um, is because I want to educate my own children as much as possible, while also allowing, the, allowing them to have a traditional education growing up in school. Because I think it's brutally difficult. The world is just becoming smaller. There's just going to be more and more competition. Uh, people from China, India, other emerging markets are just going to eat our lunch. And so the way I look at it is, I want to be a stay-at-home father to educate my children along the way until they no longer want to hear from me, speak with me, or <laughs> hang out with me, right? Like after, I think, age 12 to 14, it's kind of yeah. like see well, you later, right? Yeah, you're going to be the most horrible person on the planet, as all <laughs> yeah. of our parents are when we become teenagers. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm bracing for that. I'm, I'm hoping it's not going to be terrible, but I'm bracing for that. <laughs> so I see myself, I see like 10 years, 10 to 14 years of educational opportunity. And so one of the reasons why I've kept Financial Samurai going for so long and publishing three times a week since 2009 is because I want to show my children my work ethic, what I do, uh, how to write, how to speak, how to market, everything from finances to PR to all that stuff online. Because frankly, everything is going to be internet and technology. Uh, if you're not on there, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And my other thought process is I expect them not to get in anywhere. You know, I just, I just think it's just ultra competitive, 5%, 10% acceptance rates. Really? That's like, okay, by definition, most will not get in. Yeah. And so I expect them not to get in anywhere great. I expect them not to have amazing jobs, but I do expect to be there for them. And if they fail, I will be there for them. And if they need a job, they can come work at Financial Samurai. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about, I know you talk about that a little later in the book in terms of employing your kids, which I thought was pretty hilarious. I'd never seen anything explained like that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely true. You know what Galloway said, like, you know, people joke about the fact that they wouldn't get into their alma mater. I don't know about you, but I definitely wouldn't get into Berkeley today with the grades that I had in high school. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't get into Berkeley. I don't think well, I, I don't even bother applying because I couldn't get in. I just feel like if you have an expectation, you can't get in anywhere. You figure out on your own. And, and I think people who attend prestigious elite private, private schools need to be a little careful about understanding where, you know, where the wind is blowing. Because again, with the, you know, the operation varsity blues showing that mm -hmm. wealthy parents have been able to buy their kids way into these elite private schools and how, you know, there's a more, um, uh, bifurcated gap between the rich and the poor. The gap is widening. Do you really want to tell people that you went to some elite school that costs $80,000 a year in tuition alone? I think you probably want to stay more mum about it as, um, you know, the world changes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, talk to me about that moment when you get to Goldman Sachs, this thing that you've worked so hard for, you know, busted your ass for, you know, knocked down doors for, and you come to this realization that you don't <clears throat> want to spend your life this way. Why do you think you had it so early and so many other people spend half a decade before, or even a close to a decade before they wake up one day and they realize, like, this is not what I wanted. Well, first, they made us get in at 5.30 a.m. And so I dropped calculus in college because the, the class started at 8 a.m. So 5.30 a.m. was like super torture for me. And then just the pressure of, uh, you know, hustling and getting this information for this person. And, you know, you're getting yelled at a lot. There was not a lot of respect when you're a junior person on Wall Street. And so that, that's not me. I mean, my dad is from Hawaii. I, I'm competitive, but I'm also pretty relaxed. I'm pretty easygoing. And so I knew right then and there I couldn't last. And it wasn't for me. And the other thing is 
I saw like, so I was interviewing at Goldman in 1998 when it was private. And then the company went public in 1999 and all the partners got very, very wealthy. And so I looked at my bosses, the VPs, the partners, the partner MDs. And I said, do I want to be like that? Maybe, but not really. I don't feel like they're that much happier. And so it was really like, uh, man, what is the point of all this? And the other thing is uh, when 9-11 happened, two years after I started working in finance, it really hit home that, man, life is precious. I was at the top of uh, one of the World Trade Center buildings, uh, Windows of the World for the Latin America Goldman Conference. And then 9-11 happened months later. And that was like a wake up call for me too, saying, you know, I, I don't, I got to really find some more purpose in life. This is good. I need to make money because I don't have money. And then I was in Mumbai in 2000, I think it was 2008. And then two weeks after I left the Oberoi Hotel in Mumbai, mm-hmm. um, the terrorist attacks happened and they shot up the place at um, the Taj and the Oberoi Hotel. And that was another wake up call for me. Nine years into my career, I was like, wow, it seems like death is coming for me. I want to live my life as best that I can as a hedge, just in case of an early death. Mm. Wow. Well, I think that makes a a perfect segue into the actual content of the book, because you open the book by saying life is both long and short, fast and slow. We must try to make the most of each day so we can minimize looking back with regret. Financial freedom sooner than later is a personal mantra and guiding theme of Financial Samurai, the website and community I've been running since 2009. But then you also go on to say, but the truth is it's difficult to become financially independent simply by putting money in the bank to achieve financial freedom. We need to know how to spend our money in ways that will build wealth now and in the long run. So let's let's define financial freedom first because i think that's really important um i know you talk about the fact that everybody's definition of this is different yeah so the definition of financial independence or financial freedom is when you have enough passive income to cover your basic living expenses so passive income can come from your investments such as stock dividends bond coupon payments uh, rental income and even your entrepreneurial activities, such as, let's say, book sales. And so the idea is you're financially independent when you don't have to work for money and you can do what you want. Now, everybody has different levels of wants and needs, and that's up to you to define. But that's basically it. And um, once you have your basic living expenses, food, clothing, shelter, you can take more risks and live a life more true to yourself. Mm. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that really struck me in the opening of the book was when you said this is a book about making optimal choices for some of life's most important decisions. So in my mind, like I said, this is not just a book about money. It's about a book about making decisions as much as it is a book about money with money as the backdrop. Right. So the longer you live, the more regrets you will have. And the more regrets you will have, the more it'll eat you up inside because you'll say, gosh, I wish I did it differently, or I wish I went with that choice, or I wish I asked her out, or I wish I wrote that book or started a business. So over a a lifetime, you're going to accumulate all these regrets and it's going to kind of tear you up inside. And so the idea of buy this, not that is to help you build wealth sooner in a risk appropriate manner so you can use that money to make more optimal decisions. And I suggest to everybody to think in probabilities, not absolutes. Because when Mm -hmm. you start thinking in absolutes, you believe with 100% certainty you have to, uh, you need that 100% certainty to be able to make a decision. And that means that you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. So instead, if you think in probabilities for anything, really, it helps open things up. So I have a 70-30 decision-making framework, which states that if you believe with a 70% confidence or probability that the decision you're making will be the right one, go for it while having the humility and understanding knowing that 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong. But unless it's something catastrophic like death, you're going to bounce back, learn from your mistakes, and make better decisions going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about some of the benefits of financial freedom. I mean, some of the certain ones are kind of obvious, you know, um, freedom. And I think working fearlessly was a big one for me because I think I saw that firsthand. I mean, when you're me and you've been fired from every job you've ever had, you suddenly kind of get a reality check. You know, and to me, it was like company for life was gone. Yeah, I think the day I entered the workforce, I was like, oh, no such thing. Nobody's ever you know, going to keep me. And you say that financial freedom lets you enter jobs, pr- projects, or gigs without this fear. It gives you the courage to be more creative and take on bigger risks. It also lets you explore new areas without always worrying about pay. And that, I, I think, really, in a lot of ways, to me, you know, is a strong case for why you should find other ways to make money other than a job. Absolutely. You know, We've got this society right now. It seems that because of social media, you know, we want things now. We want to go straight to the corner office without putting in our dues. Um, but the reality is you have to make some sacrifices in the beginning because in the beginning after high school or college, you don't know that much. You're learning. So you better be busting your butt, getting in before your boss, uh, working after, networking, building you know, a support network that's going to pull you up so you can make more money and build more wealth. Because if you have the money, to not fear uh, repercussion, you can do great things. You know, imagine if you had enough money so that you can actually speak your mind and, instead of just bite your tongue when you know your boss says something really offensive. Or imagine if you had enough money where you can create a great product that people might poo-poo and boo on social media or online, but you're confident in yourself and you're you're not going to fail. Uh, you're not going to starve. I mean, you can take more risks, and that's how creators create. A lot of people, sadly, you know, a lot of the wealthiest people uh, are wealthier because they started with wealth. Like if you think about Bill Gates, the third, you know, he's he was already rich. You know, if he failed out of Harvard, he would just chill out at his vacation home. Uh, Evan Spiegel at Snapchat, he was very rich already. Um, so the idea is to get your basics down. And if you don't have your basics down, at least know that you're on the right path. So that sooner or later, you're going to get your financial life in order, and that'll give you the courage and confidence to be a better creator. Yeah. There's one thing that, that stood out to me in you know the benefits where you say the discrimination I've experienced from the playground to the boardroom was one of my main motivations for working toward final financial freedom. It was a big reason why I decided to save so much and work aggressively on passive income dreams. My desire to have absolute choice and be beholden to no one was was and still is a, a huge motivating factor. Um, I wanted to talk about that. I mean, you and I are both people who are minorities. So to yeah. me, that really stood out because, uh, you know, I, I, I remember one of my friends says, he's like, how can you call this racism? He's like, maybe you're just a shitty employee. I was like, yeah. And I also saw, you know, things that very blatantly were racism. You know, like I remember when I worked on a sales team at a market research company, my boss said, you're going to stay here and, and basically answer phones or whatever. And everybody else is going to go to this offsite. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I've had plenty of experiences of racism after coming to Virginia for high school. Uh, Again, I was living abroad uh, for 13 years of my life. One clear example was I was in Willingsburg at Denny's and I was with my girlfriend at the time. It was midnight. And she's be- she was beautiful, half Chinese, half Caucasian. I'm Asian. And then these football players came to the booth right next to us as we were eating the pancakes. And one guy looked over to me and said, um, you know, what the hell are you looking at, you chink, right? And I said, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? And then his three other burly offensive linemen uh, started um, talking smack as well. And so all I wanted to do was pick up a knife and basically attack him and defend our honor. But then I figured, you know what? It's probably not a good idea because there's four guys who weigh a thousand pounds versus me who's at 165. And so we left. So if that's not blatant racism uh, to yeah. threaten me and to call me um, derogatory words, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And then so in the workplace, uh, I quickly realized that at the end of the day, people will take care of people who come from their same backgrounds, who look like them, who went to the same school and so forth. It's just human nature. We take care of people who are more similar to us and who therefore we like more. And it's just the way it is. And so if you're an Asian person in America, you account for about 6% of the population. If you're a white person in America, you account for uh, about 60% of the population. So even if I got 100% support uh, from Asian people in America, I still would not be able to overcome uh, a white person who has 10.1% support, right? Because Mm -hmm. 6.1%, you know, is greater than 6%. And so that's just math. It's human nature and it's math. So as a minority, you just, you just got to deal with it, right? You got to recognize the way the world is, accept the racism and criticism, but use that as fire, as motivation to build your own wealth, to achieve financial freedom sooner so you can do more of what you want. It was such an amazing motivator to experience um, all this stuff coming to America for high school and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned, you know, working hard. Ed, like you said, you hear this passive income thing. And I never forgot, you know, when I I was working with my mentor, Greg, he said, you want to know the best way to earn passive income? Spend years working your ass off. Right, exactly. No passive income starts with doing nothing. You got to yeah. work your ass off. And to say anybody to say, oh, yeah, I'll just come. Well, maybe they just were born into a wealthy family. But here's the other thing. I pity the fool who has everything given to them. Because then you don't experience what it's like to struggle, or what mm-hmm. it's like to, you know, to work on something for so long and finally make it true. I mean, that is a true gift, that journey, that struggle to create something that you really, really want. It's an amazing feeling. And as a parent now, I'm, you know, I have to be very careful not to give everything to my kids because that's all I want to do. I mm-hmm. need to have them struggle. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, that, that brings up a question that I've asked a handful of people. I mean, your kids are growing up in what is probably a relatively privileged existence at this point. How do you how do you think about making sure they remain aware of how much privilege they've been born into? That's a tough question. Um, and the answer is you got to do the work. You got to do the work. So we have a rental property portfolio and I bring my son to paint and he sees me sanding, mudding, painting um, every time there's turnover, every time there's new construction. And then I have him come with me to pull the weeds, pull the weeds in our house and at our rental properties. And I say, look, you're going to pull the weeds with your daddy and you're going to make a dollar, I don't know, every 30 minutes. And you're going to use that money to save and invest for a toy that you want. Sound good? And he goes, sounds good, daddy. So the kids really need to see you do the work. And one of the benefits of working from home is they can see you do the work. They can see you in your office, typing on your computer, doing whatever. And then you tell your kids really explicitly, the reason why I'm doing the work is so I can make the money to take care of you. You have to explain to your children what you're doing, and they have to see you do the work. Yeah. Let's talk briefly about debt, um, because there's just so much more stuff I want to get to. Um, You basically go over four types of debt, credit cards, automobiles, student loans, and mortgages. And you know, I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't have student loan debt. You know, I think half the damn country is drowning in student loan debt. Yeah. Um, so I think debt weighs on you in a number of different ways. It's psychological. And then there's also this sort of balancing act of, OK, am I going to basically starve myself to death you know, and do the Dave Ramsey way of like eating beans and rice you know, <laughs> for the rest of my life? Yeah. That's not realistic either. So I'm just curious, like, you know, when you think about somebody like Ramit or, you know, your philosophy, I mean, I know nobody wants to have debt. And in a lot of cases, people didn't end up there. Some definitely ended up there out of poor choices. Some of them ended up out of, you know, circumstance. Like for me, mm-hmm. I graduated April 2009 from business school and, you know, December 2000 from undergrad, you know, you could right. not have planned such poor timing. Yeah. I mean, debt is a necessary evil in terms of education for many people. Again, I believe education is so powerful. Uh, hopefully we go into debt in the right ways um, to learn something practical that will make us money that will build us wealth. Um, but there's different levels of debt. Consumer debt obviously is terrible. If you're having revolving credit card debt with an average interest rate of between 17 to 18%, your debt cost is a 7 to 8% greater return than the average return of the S&P 500 since 1926. Jesus. And your credit card revolving debt cost is a greater percentage than the illustrious Warren Buffett has made in his career. And he's worth over $100 billion. So in terms of consumer debt, you got to get out of the consumer debt. Um, that is where you are buying things you frankly don't deserve and you don't need if, you, if it's revolving. You have to cut that out. That is number one. Um, but the other types of debt, student debt, you know, it's sad that colleges don't have a guaranteed job offer waiting for you for all the money you take out to go to that school. And so that is something where we all need to be a little bit more intentional in what we study and where we go. Uh, but I wouldn't say that student loan debt is terrible because, again, it's buying you that education to help you make better choices going forward. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's like this debt, the student debt moratorium right now. Um, but for the next level of debt, usually it's um, real estate debt, right? Mortgage mm-hmm. debt. And the idea is, you know, since the history of time, real estate has kept up with or beat inflation. And so if you can take on debt in a responsible manner, and I talk about, you know, home buying guide in my book, um, then it's probably going to be to your benefit. So the idea bottom line is get debt to buy things that'll improve the quality of your life and that'll give you a greater chance to build wealth and don't get into debt to buy things that are going to uh, ruin your life. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. Um, well, let's talk um, about what you call these asset allocation models, which are the conventional, the new life, and the financial samurai model. Can you uh, explain each one of those to us? Sure. So one of the things um, that I see wrong in people planning their finances is that they don't have a model, a net worth allocation model, or an asset allocation model to follow by age. And as a result, their risk exposure is off. They take too much risk or they take not 
enough risk for their age. And so these models, conventional new life and financial samurai, are, are there for people uh, with various levels of risk tolerance. And as you go towards the financial samurai model, it's more and more about betting on yourself. So if you look at the wealthiest people in the world, they all are entrepreneurs because they took risks, they bet on themselves, they created companies, and they have massive amounts of equity. And so not all of us are like that, right? All, a lot of us, most of us are happy with jobs, and that's totally fine. That's the conventional model. But you need to follow an appropriate asset allocation model so you can do well during the bull markets and not blow yourself up during the bear markets. Yeah. And so, you know, we all have experienced the internet. Um, and it's something that I think more and more of us should leverage to make more money and to live more free lifestyles. And so that is the idea to go from the conventional way, retire at 60, work at a job for 30, 40 years. Hopefully you find that job you like, you save and invest aggressively, or you go and be more entrepreneurial. By the time you're 30, you're starting a business and you're doing a side hustle and that could one day account for greater than 50% of your net worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk um, about the what you call you know optimizing investments. You break them down into two categories: taxable and tax advantaged. How do those work? And and you know, I think that one of the things that kind of kept going through my head uh, as I was going through your book was, "Fuck, I'm 40 years old. Like I've you know I should have been doing this years ago." And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, you know, part of that, as I said, is circumstantial. And you know, I, there are probably other people who feel like, you know, damn, like I feel like I'm going to be playing catch up for the rest of my life. So, can you address this from both those standpoints? Sure. So, I mean, the idea is you. So, taxes, taxes are going to be most of our ongoing greatest liabilities for the rest of our lives. As a result, we need to figure out ways to tax optimize as much as possible so that the drag is less so that we can build more wealth. And so the idea is, if you have a day job, take advantage, full advantage of your tax advantage retirement accounts, namely the 401k, right? Because you put money in uh, pre-tax, it grows without the drag. And then when you exit, you know, you got to pay taxes on withdrawals. And so that, that money is there for you after the age of 59 and a half. And then you should take advantage of the Roth IRA because you put money in post-tax, but hopefully when your tax rate is low, the money compounds without a tax drag over decades. And then when you withdraw, there's no tax penalty because you already paid that tax. And then if your parents take advantage and, and contribute to the 529 plan, even though the money is after tax, it compounds tax without the tax drag. And then you can use that money uh, for appropriate educational expenses without uh, paying tax or any fees. So the idea is to get into the mindset of, if you're, if the amount you're saving and investing doesn't hurt every single month, you are not saving or investing enough because you're not, you're just winging it. You're not being intentional with the money that you're investing and saving and spending. So that's the whole idea. Tax optimization. Okay, cool. I love it. That, that, that actually simplifies that entire chapter for me so much. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about real estate in particular, because I, I think it's funny. You hear so much sort of contradictory advice about real estate, right? Uh, you know, like the James Altucher's, like, you know, buying a house is the worst decision you'll ever make. For me personally, I, I value mobility, so I don't want to be locked down. But I started to see that whole mindset very differently when I read through your idea of real estate fundamentals, where you break it up into what you call short, uh, neutral, and long. So yeah. explain those to us. This is a really important concept that I hope more people will understand and talk about. You are only neutral real estate if you own your primary residence. So your primary residence, you own it, you go up and down with uh, the real estate market. You're short real estate when you're a renter. And why is that? Because you're at the mercy of ever-rising rents and ever-rising prices. You're only benefiting by renting if rents go down and property prices go down. So just like shorting the S&P 500 over the long term isn't a good idea, shorting the real estate market by renting over the long term is not a good idea. And then finally, you're only long real estate. You can only really benefit from real estate if you own more than one property because you have to live somewhere. So if you own your primary residence and you own a rental property, you can benefit from the rise in the real estate market because you can rent out your rental property and or you could sell it for a profit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, 
Speaking of, of real estate, let, let's look at two things um, here. Let's talk about, you know, uh, job choices and choices of location, when it, you know, because I know choice of location matters when it comes to real estate. I mean, you and I both know San Francisco is insanely expensive to live in at this point. Uh, I think the apartment that I used to rent in San Francisco across the street from Golden Gate Park was a two bedroom with a garage. And we paid $1,500 a month. I think that place goes for $4,000 a month now. <laughs> well, there, there goes the point of, you know, renting is short. The real estate market, you cannot benefit. Inflation is too powerful of a force to combat, especially now, right? The latest print on inflation was 9.1%. I think it's definitely going to fade in the second half of 2022 and 2023. But don't fight inflation and don't fight the Fed. Uh, these are really important Topics. It doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, look, I understand if you don't own real estate, you're probably against real estate because, you know, we are all biased to the, the choices we make. But we have to look at reality and we have to look at economics and we have to look at historical rates of return. Once you can lock down your real estate costs or at least control them a little bit, you free up a lot of ability to do other things because you don't have to constantly worry about you know, your rising, you know, home costs going up. Um, and that is different. Look, you know, I know you as a digital nomad in the past and currently in the present value uh, that flexibility. However, you have to think about if you didn't buy real estate, where did you put your money? Yeah. And if you put that money, let's say in the stock market, well, then it's probably doing fine, right? But I think the problem a lot of people have is they don't put their money into an alternative investment other than real estate real estate is like four savings as well as you pay down your mortgage. And so people will tend to blow their money on things they don't need. And that's called economic leakage. And then mm -hmm. five to 10 years from now, you wonder, where is my money? So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so that actually, so there's one other thing I wanted to bring up. There's another clip from Scott Galloway that I wanted to bring back. Um, and this one in particular, I brought up specifically for our conversation. And this is something he said that I thought was really interesting. And, and I wanted to hear your take on it. Take a listen. The definition of rich is your passive income is greater than your firm. So I have a close friend who runs a large division at a bulge racket investment bank, and he makes about between five and seven million dollars a year. California, uh, New York, and Manhattan taxes, he takes home about three and a half million. Between an ex-wife, two kids for child support from the first wife, three kids from his current marriage, a townhouse in the West Village, a home in the Hamptons, he spends all of it. He's poor. My father and his wife get $48,000 a year in Social Security and his pension from the Royal Navy and some income from a trailer park they bought 20 years ago, $48,000 in passive income, and they spend $40,000 a year. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's human nature to say, if you don't have mega millions, that someone is poor and you try to make yourself feel better if, about whatever you have. So I don't agree with that. Uh, clearly, the person making five to seven million is rich. Mm -hmm. He or she has the optionality to reduce their burn. Yeah. Whereas the person who with 48,000 has less optionality. So unless you're a complete donkey and don't know how to cut costs or change your tastes or adjust to different times, I think more people would agree that having five to seven million a year <laughs> yeah. is better than having 48,000 a year. So yeah, that's I'm, I'm, I tend to agree with you on that, yeah. which I think that actually makes a perfect segue into talking specifically about career choices. Um, one of the things that you say is company loyalty is overrated in this day and age. Long gone are the days of pensions and opportunities to work at one company for life. Being loyal is sadly now a 3070 move. Instead, for maximum financial gain, you should job hop every two to five years during your 20s and 30s. Too many people make the mistake of thinking that if they do a good job, they'll eventually get promoted and paid what they're worth. Unfortunately, that's not how it works in most companies. Meritocracy is a lost art. Yeah. I think that makes some people who have full-time jobs think, what the hell? What the hell? Why am I not leaving and jumping? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's true. So you get your first job and you hopefully get paid market rate. And then every year that time goes by, there is this growing gap between the market rate and the rate that you earn. And it's up to you. And it's very difficult to try to close that gap without sounding like a greedy employee. And so the easiest way to get back to market rate is to job hop. 
every two to five years. I was a loyal soldier at Credit Suisse for 11 years. Um, and that probably cost me over a million dollars because I was comfortable. You know, I was accepting of getting paid below market rate. I didn't fight hard enough to get those raises. And I do recommend that once a year, every year you show what you, what, what you've done, all the value you've added, especially at the beginning of the year, because your managers will not remember anything you did in the first half of the year unless you remind them. So you really have to be fighting for yourself. And I think it's worth job hopping three to four to five times in the first 15, 20 years of your career to get that market rate, um, to make the most amount you can. And so long as you're joining companies that have a good purpose and good people, why not? I think loyalty, sadly, is overrated. Companies are going to fire you or lay you off as soon as they need to cut costs. Yeah, I trust me, I've experienced that firsthand. So um, let's talk specifically about side hustles. There's one thing that you said about side hustles, and I, I really like it. It's funny because it, it actually inspired the title for a blog post that I want to write. You said the best time to start a side gig is when you have a stable job with benefits, when you have no source, not when you have no source of income. Consider the first two years of growing your endeavor an incubation period with downside risks. See if you enjoy the process. And you and I both know this. I can't tell you how many people will basically say, I don't have time. Time comes up over and over and over as mm. like the most frequent excuse that people give me for, oh, I, I can't do this. And I remember I, I sent you a DM with what I said was my favorite quote from the entire book. So with those two things in mind, talk about that in more detail. Well, working 40 hours a week is an artificial construct. And the thing is, when people say they don't have time, what they mean is they just simply don't want to do it. You will do something if you want it bad enough, because I believe long term, everything is rational. If you hate your job, enough, or if you want to do something else enough, or if you want that wealth enough, you're going to find ways to make time. And so don't come to me and say, I don't have time, but I still want this. Because the reality is you don't want this. You don't want it because otherwise you would make time. For me, I wanted to get out of finance. After 11 years, I was like, this this is not fun. Uh, you know, the recession, financial crisis, not making as much money, the correlation with effort and reward is off. And so I decided you know what, I'm going to start Financial Samurai finally in 2009, July, bottom of the market, because I was scared. I was scared that I was going to lose my job. And I wanted to do something new. And I needed a backup plan because I already graduated from business school. And therefore, I woke up a little bit earlier, you know, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., worked on it for an hour, two hours. And then after I ate at around 9 p.m., I worked on it some more. You will make time if something you care about is, you know, is great enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I said Laura Vanderkam in one of her books said everything you say you don't have time for is just not a priority. Yeah. So I want to go to this quote in particular, because this, like I said, was my favorite quote in the entire book. And that is that you can't do extraordinary things if you do what everybody else is doing. That's true. Because if you do what everybody else is doing, you're just going to hug the middle, right? It's just the bell curve. And you've got to be able to put your hard hat on if you want to do something different, do something new, you're going to ruffle so many feathers. Man, I got to tell you, I've gotten so much backlash uh, writing about so many things and different concepts over the past 13 years on Financial Samurai. But the good thing is you just get used to it. And if you say it in a respectful and logical way, I think people will come around. And mm -hmm. there's no way uh, I would have imagined that I would be able to leave my job at age 34 and be free and to do what I want. Uh, if I didn't take more risks, if I didn't think, hmm, maybe I can negotiate a severance package, just like, you know, you're, you're trying to negotiate your way into a job. What if I could negotiate a way, my way out of a job? You know, that's unconventional thinking. And a lot of people still don't do that, even though I've written a book about how to negotiate a severance in 2012, because people are too afraid of doing something different. They're too afraid of confrontation. They'd rather text you instead of break up with you. And that's a shame. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I remember, you know, going through parts of the book and this is something that occurred to me, uh, you know, as I was thinking about the fact that you and I are going to connect again, because I remember there were times that you would write things and they would trigger me and you might even remember some of these. And I realized now looking back why they triggered me is because there was a grain of truth to them. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I, I do remember what I wrote. It was called, uh, do, do people really work only 40 hours a week or less and complain why they can't get ahead. 
and I know I pissed yeah, you I, off, and I'm and sorry. And I remember because I was like, you said swimming, not surfing. I still remember that. But <laughs> on, but the funny thing is, and I realize now, you know, especially after working with a mentor who rode my ass like no tomorrow. Yeah. Often, what you want to hear feels good. What you need to hear doesn't. Yeah, people don't care. They're not. They're just going to tell you what you want to hear and just move on. They don't have time for your your stuff, right? Everybody has their yeah. own problems. But if people care, if people want to like shake you to change, they're going to tell you the truth. And then you're either going to accept it and try to learn from it, or you're going to be stubborn and not, and then you're yeah. going to accept whatever that comes your way. Well, speaking of things that piss people off, this is one final place that I want to actually go to, and this is marriage. And I think this really struck me uh, as something that stood out. And you even say, I know that what I'm about to say will rub some people the wrong way, but I believe it to be true. All else being equal, if you have a choice, marrying someone you love who is well off is an optimal decision versus marrying someone who's struggling financially. By marrying someone who's financially secure, you get to leapfrog a generation of struggle. I I think that that, that is so, you know, sort of practical and, and logical because so often, you know, when we get like sort of, you know, starry eyed. We don't think about the practicality of any of this. No, we don't think about anything. I didn't think about that at all when I was in high school, college. I just wanted to be with someone who I found very, very attractive and nice. And But now that I'm a parent, and, and if you think about your parents in Indian culture, I think you told a story about, you know, setting your know, parents trying to set you up with other people, mm-hmm. right? You were even on that show on Netflix. <laughs> that was awesome, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea is you want what's best for your kids. You want them to have love, but you also want to not worry about them financially. Yeah. And so it's it's just being practical. And look, if all else being equal, right? Not everything is equal, but I'm just saying all else being equal. If you can find someone you love who is actually well off or on the right path, go for it. Because look, if 40 to 50% of marriages fail and money is one of the one or two greatest reasons for that marriage failing, then obviously finding someone with the right uh, if you're on the same page financially, it makes better sense than not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I yeah, that was one of those things that I realized, you know, after having girlfriends where I had no boundaries around money and was willing to spend money I didn't have, I finally realized I was like, this is actually important. You know, this is one of those things where I need to be okay with, you know, things that I'm going to say are deal breakers. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're a team. You have to, you got to find your, your best teammate who's got your back who's got the same goals, same philosophies. Otherwise, things are going to get really te- uh, you know, contentious real quick. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because I feel like these huge life events just amplify you know, underlying problems that you're ignoring. Yes. So one last thing. So you make this distinction between passion and money and startups and big companies. Let's finish there. Um, because I really appreciated the fact that you mentioned that the, you know, sort of stories that we hear about startup success are primarily outliers. And it's so true. Like, I mean, in general, if you think about almost all the literature around successful people, it's all basically about outliers. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say be careful. Uh, you know, there's a lot of starry eyed people who want to join startups because they think they're going to ride the rocket ship to mega millions. And that's especially true here in the San Francisco Bay area. But as someone who's lived here for, you know, 20 plus years, I've spoken to many, many startup employees, nine times out of 10, you don't get rich joining a startup. You get rich sticking at a, going to a traditional job where that pays market rate and, you know, you're saving and investing and you're staying there and you're, well, your job hopping around your established industry. So I would say it, it just depends on what you want to do and how much, how much you believe in the company and how much you want to bet on yourself. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been awesome, man. I mean, you've really packed it with so much insight and um, wisdom. So I want to ask you my final question, which it's funny because I don't think you've ever actually been a guest since we called the show The Unmistakable Creative, even though you were when we had the first version of the show. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think being able to live true to yourself, whatever it is that you believe, you do. So that means having congruency with thought and with action. Because if you think one way and you're doing something else, you're incongruent and you're very forgettable. But if you think in one way and you continuously do and you stick with it over time, I think that makes you unmistakable because too many people, they'll quit way before the the good gets good. And so I hope people can really be able to be congruent in their lifestyles. Mm. 
Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us, to share your stories, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, the book, and everything else you're up to? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can go to financialsamurai.com and leave a comment on any article that you find. Uh, you can buy Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom at financialsamurai.com forward slash BTNT. And you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at financialsamurai.com forward slash newsletter. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you, Srini. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.